are so thrilled that we get to have one of our favorite people in the sovereign debt world. Although she does so much more than sovereign debt in her day job. Our guest today is Chelsea Delaney of the Wall Street Journal. I like to think of her as Chelsea, who is a guest on Clauses and Controversies and educates us about what is going on in the world. And the Wall Street Journal is just her secondary gig. Well, welcome, Chelsea, and thank you for coming back to our podcast. Yeah, yeah, happily. I also consider myself, first and foremost, a a Clauses and Controversies guest. Yay! (laughs) So, Chelsea... One of the questions, one of the main questions that we were hoping to ask you about today has to do with the interminable, at least it appears to us, delays with restructurings going on, in particular with Ghana that you have written a lot about, uh, but maybe also we'll touch upon other delayed restructurings like Sri Lanka. But before we get to that, since you are a fancy Wall Street Journal reporter who's not restricted in reporting only about sovereign debt, I was wondering if you could give you give us a sense of what kind of stuff's going out going on in the world right now that has impact on the the debt world that is looking pretty precarious, although I I have been reading that at least some of the stronger EM issuers are able to raise capital, but the weaker ones, I think, are still in trouble. Yeah, yeah. I think um, January was like a pretty remarkable month for the emerging market world, but really the the whole whole debt world. Uh, There was a ton of issuance. It was definitely a record um, for emerging market sovereigns, but I think also for European governments and um, European companies was, was up there as well. So it was, it's been a really busy start to the year. Um, but as you mentioned, a lot of that is, is benefiting, you know, the, the bigger, more highly rated, uh, economies like Mexico or, uh, Indonesia and, and, and a lot of the, the smaller countries that were already struggling last year that were locked out of the market and have been locked out for about a year now, they, they, they definitely, are still on the brink. And I think we continue to see countries um, really struggling. Like I think everybody's watching Pakistan right now. Um, but yeah, it just in, in general, it, it has been a very different start to the year than, than what we saw for most of, of last year. January was relatively optimistic, although um, not uh not for some things like green bonds, which me too and I have been thinking about lately. Which um, I won't uh, uh, I won't take us too far off topic in asking uh, in asking about those. I want to stay on topic if I can, um, and and I kind of want to follow up on me too's allusion to debt restructurings taking a lot longer than they ought to be taking. And before talking about Ghana in particular. I just want to get a sense if you agree with that and if you have a sense of why that is. Is it all fighting over you know, financing assurances from China or, or is there a lot more going on? Yeah, I think that's, that's a really good question. Everybody's obviously growing very frustrated with a lot of the restructurings. And I mean, some of them have genuinely dragged on for, for years now. Ghana is a bit different though, I think, because 
they have only been in restructuring and in, in this restructuring process for about two months now. I think they officially started that in early December. So it definitely hasn't dragged on nearly as long as as some of these other ones, but they are earlier on in the process and they definitely haven't been moving as quickly as the government had initially indicated they would. Um, so I think when Ghana launched its restructuring in December, the domestic debt restructuring, they had very optimistic uh, timelines where they thought, you know, it would be done in a couple of weeks by the end of the year. And um, I think maybe they thought it would be done by early January. I can't remember the exact dates, but it's still dragging on now on February 8th. They've just extended the deadline once again. Um, so yeah, it definitely hasn't been as easy as they thought it would be, but I think it's a different set of circumstances to some degree from, from what's been happening in some of the other restructurings, Sri Lanka and, and, and Zambia um, and others. And, you know, those are sort of playing out at the um, sort of on the, on the bilateral Paris club scale right now. Um, and yeah, I, I think a lot of people point, point the finger are, are pointing the finger at China uh, for not giving financing assurances and um, things like that. But I think you hear a, a wide variety of, of opinions and the emerging market debt space on, on who's really to blame. Um, I think everybody can point the finger at one of the players in these restructurings. Um, but I think- Except for the bondholders, they are pure. <laughs> Oh, yes. <laughs> Completely blameless. Nobody points fingers at bondholders. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I mean, I haven't covered this space that long. You guys probably know more about it than I do, but I'm sure in every every iteration of restructurings, there's a lot of blame game going around. Yeah I, tense? I, yeah, I mean, that that's that's consistent with sort of my sense of the of the history and Mitsu's goes farther back. I I feel like there has been such a lot of drama though in such a short period of time for for Ghana and and I think one or both of us will get around to asking you about the sort of differences in the treatment of domestic debt between Ghana and some of the other uh, some of the other countries like Zambia but can you just like catch us up to speed on what has happened? There was the the strange sort of request for a attorney general's opinion about kind of retrofitting a CAC onto the domestic debt. And I confess, I, I didn't really understand the politics of that. Was the government trying to not do it and get cover for not doing it? Anyway, there, there's just been a ton that that sort of happened in such a short time. And I'm I'm wondering if you can just give us sort of the lay of the land and where we are now and how we got there. Yeah, sure. And um, yeah, I, I guess the disclosure is that like, I've, I've not, I'm not on the ground. So there's a lot going on with like every financial industry player in Ghana and, and I'm not fully up to speed on, on all of those things. But I think broadly, you know, Ghana, people were on, you know, restructuring watch for Ghana for, for quite a while. And I think what's really different about Ghana is that it was kind of assumed from the beginning that they would have to restructure their domestic debt, um, which to my understanding is, is a pretty new, uh, fa a new, new factor in, in this most recent round of, of defaults and 
sovereign debt restructurings. Um, it's playing a role in, in not just Ghana, but Sri, uh, Sri Lanka and Zambia as well. And it, it might in, in Pakistan if they also have to restructure. Um, but I think there was for a long time this idea that um, you know domestic debt is too risky to to restructure. It's too it, 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 it causes too many problems in the dom- domestic financial system. So we really shouldn't touch it unless you absolutely have to. And it wasn't always such a big part of um, it, it's it's definitely grown in recent years as a percentage of of the pie. So I think it's this is an interesting inflection point for. Um, for these components, because for a long time, um, people, when, when you talked about restrictions, I think it just wasn't really part of the conversation. And now it's it's really central to, to all of these restructurings. Um, so Ghana has a lot of domestic debt ex- expenses. So it has um, the majority of its debt service, servicing is going to domestic debt, which is why people we're, we're pretty confident that it, it had to to play a big role in this restructuring. And um, so, yeah, I think that in, in December, or I think it was actually late November, um, actually, I think it was Thanksgiving Day. Yeah, Thanksgiving Day, they, I think they announced they would do, they were, they were going to restructure the domestic debt. Um, and yeah, they, they've, launched this exchange and initially they were planning to not give any interest payments on on those bonds next year and they've had a lot of pushback from the domestic financial industry and things like pensions and um, individual individual bondholders and you know they, there have been a lot of um there's yeah there's there's been a lot of frustration within the domestic financial system and you know some banks and financial industry players have said you know if you if you implement a restructuring that's this harsh like there there will be uh, widespread issues in the banking system so all these things that you know uh sort of academics had warned about for a long time they did seem to be sort of playing out in Ghana um the government has sort of softened those terms a bit and they have been able to get more, they've reached agreements with a lot of the big players in the domestic financial system. Initially, they had thrown out this number that they had hoped to get about 80% of the uh, domestic bondholders to exchange the bonds to participate in the in the exchange. It doesn't seem at this point that they've reached anywhere near that. I think the latest number I saw was above 50%, but not nowhere near 80%. So it's unclear if they'll actually be able to, to get to 80%. Um, but I think there's optimism that they, that they are, you know, reaching a critical, a critical mass for this. So Chelsea, I, if you don't mind, I, I want to go back to one of the points that Mark had raised and it relates to what you said and the, their inability to get, a really high percentage of credit domestic creditors participating. So we know from the experiences in Barbados and Greece and going back further in history that domestic debt as a legal matter is generally much easier to restructure than foreign debt in large part because domestic debt is governed by domestic law. It's usually very 
thinly covenanted, very few promises. The domestic legal framework is oriented towards supporting the government, particularly in a crisis. And the constraint is, of course, that if you severely restructure the domestic debt, then it it has financial repercussions on your economy and people don't like you and that they, they don't vote for you. So we know there's this tension, but Ghana uh, did this, took this, to, to me, totally a bizarre step of having the attorney general prepare a memorandum. This is the government as I can see, shooting itself in the foot before the restructuring starts, they prepare memorandums saying, uh, we will not use the strategy that Greece and Barbados did uh, and the strategy that survived a legal challenge in multiple courts in Europe. We, we will not take that strategy because you know we, we're we have greater fidelity to the rule of law here in Ghana. And we're just going to do this restructuring on a completely voluntary basis. And I am guessing that this is because there was huge domestic pressure on the government to allow certain creditors to escape scot-free. Now, but if you do that, you get precisely this kind of situation where you tell everybody, here, uh, please voluntarily take less money. Unless the creditor in question is somebody under the boot of the government, they're going to say, well, you know, screw you. I'm not taking less money. Why should I take less money? Take it out of the foreign creditors or something else. And I, it just... I, is nobody minding the shop there? Like, no wonder this thing is going on and on and on and on just on the domestic exchange. I don't I don't understand. And then there was the whole bizarre thing where the attorney general's uh, opinion, uh, every single investor I know had it, yet it was supposedly secret. And, you know, like so they intentionally had to have leaked it if even I got it. Yeah, and it was posted online as well. Um, so one of the local news organizations in Ghana also posted it online. So it's definitely it's definitely out there. Um, yeah, I mean it has it has been messy. I don't think anybody will dispute that. Um, I think one of the reasons that people will cite is that you know the Ghana Ghanaian government didn't consult with any sort of domestic investors before they they really launched it. So I think all of these things are playing out really publicly. And maybe um if 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 they had done it, if they had done more consultations, these things would not be playing playing out in such a public way. Um, but in terms of I think in terms of the attorney general memo, my understanding of that was that it was the finance the finance ministry had asked if they could retroactively and implement um, the collective action clauses, and the attorney general was saying no, as you, as you mentioned. But there definitely has been a lot of back and forth and a lot of changes to um, to the offer that they've given to in, in this domestic debt exchange. At, at one point, um, individual bondholders were going to be exempted. Now they're back in. Pensions are in. Pensions are out. So there's there's definitely been um, yeah a lot of a lot of shuffling of cards there. Um, I think people in Ghana 
are very frustrated with this, uh, with, with how this has gone and, you know, feel that they're getting a really harsh deal. And I, I, I'm talking to external bondholders as well. I think external bondholders think that Ghana is coming down really hard on domestic investors. Um, and that, you know, this is one of the harsher domestic restructurings that has, that we've seen, uh, you mentioned, um, I think Jamaica and, and, and I don't think sort of the, the NPV loss that Ghana is, is trying to push on investors here. It's, it's really far beyond what you've seen in other domestic restructurings. So, um, I think there is an acknowledgement even from, you know, foreign bondholders that domestic bondholders are, are, are being asked to accept a really, a really tough deal here. So the, let me just follow up on this. So I, I have also heard uh, from foreign bondholders that, you know, they, they want the domestic exchange to go forward without too much pain, in part because they don't want to kill the domestic economy. Uh, on the other hand, foreign creditors are a diverse and dispersed group with conflicting interests, and some of them uh, will be inclined uh, to extract more relief from the domestic holders uh, if they can, because that will mean that they have to give uh, less relief themselves. But I, I want to take this to the legal weeds and Chelsea, we can we can uh, point this question uh, towards Mark if he will indulge us, but I, I want to give it pose it to both of you. So because I'm I live in the legal weeds that often strangle me, uh, I looked at Ghana's covenants and the most beloved covenant to me, of course, is the Pari Pasu clause. Now, Ghana's Pari Pasu clause, at least in one of the most recent foreign issuances, is unusual. And it's unusual in the sense that it promises Pari Pasu treatment to all of its public debt, if I remember correctly. Mark, you can correct me if, if on this. But I, I'm pretty sure it's a very, very broad clause. Now, those kinds of incredibly broad clauses, one might think, are drafted in that fashion because foreign creditors recognize that this is a country that has a lot of domestic debt being held by foreign creditors. So unlike in the old days where you know, foreign was foreign and domestic was domestic and never the twain shall meet. And you, these days, uh, and again, Chelsea, you can correct me on this. My impression is there's a lot of foreign institutions that hold a big chunk of Ghanaian local debt. Some of them have made out like bandits. Some of them uh, uh, took took haircuts already or at least took price, price, um, price falls. But because of that sort of situation, that external debt is no longer easily separable into domestic currency held by domestic residents and foreign currency held by foreign residents, that's why many countries that have this kind of situation have clauses 
that cover both domestic and foreign and say in the bonds of the foreign creditors, you got to treat us all equally. So they, if the foreign creditors, if some of them are reading their clauses, they're going to be just waiting for the domestic holders to get better treatment. And then some of them will use this as a cudgel to disrupt the, the entire process. And then I'm wondering what Mr. Attorney General is going to write in his little memo uh, about, you know, Ghana preserving the rule of law, because this would be a violation, I would think. Somehow the Attorney General has come out to be the bad guy in all of this. I'm not so, so fond of Mr. Attorney General or Miss Attorney General. <laughs> um, yeah, I totally get your point. I guess in my conversations with Ghana's bond external bondholders, um, I think they think they're getting the better deal. But I guess that also just depends on on who you ask and at what point they bought their Ghanaian bonds. So, um, yeah, I, I would presume with with most as with most restructurings, there will be some inner creditor fighting. But I definitely I think that that point that you make that there has been a huge expansion of, um, you know, foreign investors in local debt has really complicated these restructurings. And I think that's what we've seen play out in, um, in the Zambia restructuring, where there's now a big push to, and there's a lot of people calling for Zambia to include foreign bondholders who have external bondholders who hold local bonds um, and in this restructuring because um you know that's a pretty it's 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 a notable portion of of the debt stock and a lot of those bondholders you know bought in post restructuring and um like should should they be able to sort of get off here with with those big profits so it's definitely created a lot of a lot of animosity between between creditor groups. I mean, it is an interesting dynamic. I, Me Too's story is one of sort of very deliberate design, and I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical, I guess, in part because I think we've seen these clauses stretching way back at times when there was a clearer separation between domestic and foreign debt and and the clause just looks sort of like a bizarro mistake back at the time. But I mean, that to me, just quickly to sort of follow up on Me Too's point, and then I want to shift gears, there are all kinds of reasons why I'm skeptical that this is a meaningful risk here. But the, the biggest thing is you've got, in order for it to be a useful source of rights for investors, they've got to not just kind of win on the merits about what the clause means and and get the remedy they want but you know you've got you've got a chain of payments running from Ghana which is a sovereign and if it wants to ignore a court's order it can do it and then you've got a bunch of local financial institutions the court has no power over so they can ignore the order and the order shouldn't even really be directed to them and then you've got the recipient of the payments. And even in Argentina, the recipient of the payments didn't get enjoined. So it seems it's harder for me to figure out how you even get a remedy in this situation. And it would require 
some pretty extraordinary gymnastics, I think, by a judge to even if you bought the, you know, that the Perry Pursuit Clause actually had some teeth here. It's hard to see how you convert that into a meaningful kind of remedy. But anyway, um, I don't maybe we don't want to get too strangled by the weeds. I wonder if we can just kind of come back to to the broader version of the question we had been talking about earlier, which was, so we, we started by asking you about why things were taking so long. And you, I think, rightly were making the story more nuanced than just China dragging its feet. Um, although maybe that does seem to be part of it. But I'm wondering, do is it too early to draw lessons about the common framework, the you know supposed great innovation that was gonna produce coordination between China and other bilateral creditors? I mean, it seems like everywhere, Zambia, maybe Ghana, seems like everywhere, Sri Lanka, is just sort of a mess and nothing is happening. And you know, maybe it's not worse than it would have been before, but is the common framework doing anything at all? I know. And on Ghana, like, I okay, that maybe this is not, if, if this doesn't relate to Mark's question, please ignore it. But I think, I mean, didn't Ghana just say, like, we want the common framework, but then they said, we want it to work faster. I, I understand, like, it doesn't work fast. I don't understand. But why do you want it? You don't even, like, you don't even have that much Chinese or bilateral debt. Yeah. Yours is primarily domestic and foreign, you know, like commercial debt. Oh, Chelsea, please explain to us what the <laughs> hell is going on here? Well, I think from what I've heard um, in my reporting, I mean, Ghana had been quite public about its concerns with using the common framework about the delays that we've seen with Zambia and Sri Lanka and how it didn't want to sort of fall into that same pattern. Um, but yeah, and then they changed, changed their tune and, and kind of surprised everybody by saying they would go with the common framework, which was a bit confusing because yeah, they, they, the Chinese debt is, is pretty small. They don't have the same like bilateral creditor dynamics as Sri Lanka or Zambia. So yeah, there was definitely a lot of, a lot of head scratching, um, I think, you know, what, what some people have told me who have, you know, heard, who have been sort of involved in some of these conversations is, is that there was a lot of political pressure on Ghana to, to use the common framework. Um, and, you know, that's probably why they did it. I don't, I don't think they, they did it because they thought it was like the greatest idea and they were like really excited about using the common framework. I think there was, yeah, ob obvious political pressure um, to use it. So what the idea is like, oh, you'll be easy because you don't have a lot of Chinese debt. So then we can claim a victory. Right. Yeah. Like this, maybe this is a simpler, <laughs> simpler one for it. <laughs> but I mean, so we haven't gotten to the point of, of the common framework really kicking in for, for Ghana yet. They've, the delays have been pretty much exclusively on, on the domestic side. So who knows, like maybe once we get to the, to the, you know, the, the, the bilateral conversations, the external bondholder conversations, maybe it'll just sail right through. So Chelsea, <laughs> is, there, is there any, any uh, indication of hope in the other restructurings that like people have 
figured out a way out, for example, with Sri Lanka? Or are you are you seeing anything? Is I mean, I, I keep hearing in the news there are all these letters that, that I, when I read like letters from India promising something, but I read the letter and I can't tell what they're promising. It doesn't seem like they're <laughs> promising anything. But I mean, they're, they're, I hear people saying, well, we hope to get a letter from China soon. I'm like, the letter didn't say anything. I'm not even sure it was signed by anybody meaningful. But it, there, like, there seems to be implicit stuff going on in these different restructurings that's all communicated in code and you talk to the real people so what does the code mean have they figured out a way to make progress or we're just in stasis <laughs> yeah there's a lot of reading between the lines with those statements um i mean i think with, with sri lanka there's definitely been like a, a pretty obvious breakthrough yes or this week with um with the Paris Club giving financial assurances without China's assurance, that's I think that's a pretty big breakthrough. We haven't really seen that that been done. Um, so how did that happen? Like what? Presumably, I mean, the Paris Club, from our experience, is a little bit obsessed with comparable treatment, and they would have wanted assurances that all the other creditor groups would get treated the same. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not privy to the discussions of the Paris Club, but clearly they they were willing to go ahead without all of the the financial assurances that you would normally have. Um, there's still obviously like there will be other hurdles. Um, it's unclear if the IMF will agree to lend into arrears to to Sri Lanka. It's unclear if if this will get China to. Um, to give the final financial assurances that the Paris Club wants, um, but it definitely shows that bilateral creditors are trying to find ways around um, the perceived intransigence of, of of China. So Chelsea, I, I have so many questions, and we're running out of time, but I'm going to try to uh, try not to ask them all at the same time. But have you followed? this arbitration drama that I'm hearing. So it, it I, I was searching for material on Ghanaian debt as uh, I was preparing for our podcast. And the first news stories that popped up when I start, I was searching were, oh, the Ghana's attorney general, of course, comes back. Ghana's attorney general has won a great victory for the people of Ghana because they like stiffed this Chinese company of its contract. So, you know, as you read it, you realize they just they they just breached their contract and they haven't actually won a great victory. It's just there was some jurisdictional claim on which uh, the arbitration panel ruled in favor of Ghana, but it, it didn't kill the claim. But what surprised me was that they were willing to stiff a Chinese uh, state-owned company. And it was, you know, there, there are two things that pop out of this. One, are there going to be a lot of arbitration claims that are out there as a form of creditors seeking to get paid as well? And coordinating them is going to be even more difficult than the typical creditor? And second, can we read anything into the willingness of 
the Ghanaians to stiff this Chinese company or is it just some kind of marginal weird thing that I'm reading too much into? <laughs> um, I have to be honest, I don't know much about this. <laughs> it's a bit outside my my wheelhouse. Um, so yeah, I'm not I'm not sure. <laughs> All right, I'll pass on that question. That 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 was probably I, I that also was, that now, was weedsy indeed. Yes, I am so weedsy, and you know maybe I was reading some disreputable uh, websites that that clearly didn't didn't really understand what was going on. But I'm like, they're stiffing a Chinese company. That that can't be good news. No, I'm sure. I'm sure there's something there. I'll have to look into it after this. <laughs> Can I ask another we another weedsy question? Which maybe the answer to it is is just it's too easy um or maybe the answer to it is it's too early to know but i'm wondering if there's more scuttlebutt about the 2030 bond though the one that benefited from the world bank guarantee which me too and i were so so puzzled about for a variety of reasons but you know it wasn't clear whether it was going to be treated differently if the bank was going to pay out on the guarantee and then what implications that would have. Um, you know, I think there was a time when it was priced significantly higher than the non-guaranteed bond. And then the prices, they, they converged a little bit, although not completely. And, and I confess I haven't looked since then, but is there, has there been any news or any scuttlebutt at all about that 2030 bond or Maybe it's just sort of radio silence for now. I think officially there has not been uh, there hasn't been any um, determination of, of whether it will be restructured or not. Um, I think everybody's also asking this question because it's kind of a fascinating um, security there. I from from talking to bondholders who hold that bond. Um, it's it's obviously a, an expensive bond for Ghana. It was it has a very high coupon rate, much higher than other Ghanaian bonds. So for Ghana, like they would obviously want that restructured. The World Bank um, seems to be on the other side where they don't want it restructured. Uh, but yeah, it's it's still it's still up in the air whether that will be included. So Chelsea, we have used up all of our time. But since I get the last word, I'm going to try to sneak in a last question, but you should feel free to ignore it, especially since uh, it, this one is not from a disreputable uh, website. So I, I'm going to point to your own articles, uh, which are highly reputable so that um, we, we at least, uh, I, I sound more respectable this time. But I have seen no mention in all of these restructuring talks of yet another category of debt that I think was going to cause trouble. And I only learned about this, and um, Mark, I think this goes for Mark as well, when we got to know who you were in the first place, when we read, a, read your fabulous article in the journal about syndicated loans coming back to life. And Back then, Ghana was borrowing, if I remember correctly, using the syndicated loan instruments because they could not borrow in the bond market. And if I remember this part also, uh, those syndicated loans did not have any meaningful restructuring provisions. 
which meant that the people who lent that money were thinking, yeah, this, this castle is going to fall and we don't plan to restructure our debt. Now, Mark said that Paripasu is going to be hard hard to operate. But if there's a whole bunch of these creditors, and these guys are foreign creditors, who are not planning to take any debt relief, somebody's going to get screwed and somebody's not. So I'm wondering whether you, I mean, you're the world's leading expert on syndicated loans now. Have you heard anything about those guys? Yeah, it's a good question. And uh, for, for listeners, I am not the world's leading expert on syndicated loans, but if you are the world's expert on syndicated loans, please reach out to me. Uh, because yeah, this is a, a question that you've asked me before and I don't have a good answer. I don't, yeah, I, I'm not sure how this will work in a restructuring. Obviously, um, I think that they have to be addressed in countries that are restructuring other debt. When I talk to people in the syndicated loan world, they always indicated to me that it would be easier to restructure these um, than bonds. But yeah, I, I don't have a great answer for that, but would love to know more if someone out there is listening who knows. <laughs> well, Chelsea, thank you so much for coming to uh, to talk to us once more. And hopefully, maybe we'll give it a couple of months, but I know there's going to be plenty more we're going to want to talk to you about if we can persuade you to, to come back. But uh, thanks so much.